You're listening to Talking Tricks, the home of amazing stories from magic, circus, variety, and comedy performers. Hello and welcome to Talking Tricks, a podcast with us, Kane and Abel, two magicians with the exact same voice. We're coming to you live from Walthamstow, the home of people who make and create. And over the last few days, I've been making and creating grottos in the house. I'm getting into the Christmas mood myself. There's some mince pies in the oven. Tinsel is all around us. The lights are on. I've brought my tree. I'm going to watch the Christmas Chronicles on Netflix this evening. I'm going to go and watch an elf quote along. This week I am I can see some carols at St. James Street this week. I am very much. No one wants to hear about it. No one cares. What are you on about? People care. It's Christmas. It's not even December. It is December. We're putting this one out in December. This one goes out in December. Ah, right, okay. What does that mean? Come on, Kane. Why why you gotta be a Grinch? Come on, Kane. It's time to get into the festive spirit. What is this? What's good? It's brandy. Why are you pouring brandy? This is the Christmas spirit. This is the spirit we have at Christmas. This isn't what I mean. You know, get into the festive spirit. This is the festive spirit. This is the spirit we have at every every single Christmas, every festive time. The festive spirit is not... This is the festive spirit. Brandy. This is the spirit that we have every single Christmas. Brandy. I mean, if you mean... If you're thinking about Dubonnet, which we have on Christmas Day, that's not a spirit, it's a red wine based aperitif. I'm not thinking this. Brandy is not the festive spirit. Dubonnet is not the festive spirit. Well, of course it is. This is all we drink at Christmas. This is the spirit that we have at Christmas. People are going to be sending in more complaints that they're worried about you. They're worried about you. The festive spirit is. This is the festive spirit! It's not the festive spirit! This is the spirit that we have. At Christmas. I know it's the spirit we have at Christmas, but it's so not the this... festive spirit. The festive spirit, Kate, is sharing goodwill and happiness to your fellow men. You just sit there with your brandy in the corner silently like everyone's <laughs> least favourite uncle. And I'll do the intro here. I'm sorry about this, ladies and gentlemen. Kane is now swigging away at this brandy. I'll try and do the best to, to make good of this intro because we've got an amazing guest and an amazing story for you this week. This is the, probably the best story we've recorded so far, actually, isn't it? Very good, because we're going to tell the story of Oddballs. We're going to be joined by Alex Oddball in a few moments. And so why are you doing the river dance? Why are you doing the river dance Come here? on, let's do the introduction. I'm doing the introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, Alex Oddball is going to tell us the amazing story of... Where are you going? I need to go to the toilet. I mean, you're talking. You don't need me to be here. I've drunken too much brandy. I need to go to the toilet. You could wait a minute. I can, you know, like I'm actually really, really desperate to go to the toilet now. Like, you know, going to wee all over the expensive equipment. Do not do that. You know, and I might actually wee wee on you a little bit. Do not. Don't you wee on me. How would you, you know, how would you feel if I weed on you? I'd be very pissed off if you weed on me. No, you wouldn't. You'd be pissed off. (laughs) Oh, for... 
Sorry guys, Ed Kane has obviously been at the Christmas cracker jokes a little bit early. Ladies and gentlemen, coming up now is the amazing story of Oddballs, how one man took his passion and love of juggling from performing with makeshift sticks on the street to being the world's best juggling store. It's an amazing story and we can't wait to tell it. With you now on Talking Tricks. The number one podcast for great stories from the world of magic, circus, comedy and variety. You're listening to Talking Tricks. Joining us now on Talking Tricks is Alex Oddballs. We're sat here in the Oddballs Empire in the warehouse. You can maybe hear in the distance now items being packaged up to send to maybe professional jugglers, novices. There might be someone dreaming of learning a cascade and that's their balls being wrapped up now. Alex joins us now. First and foremost... Talk our listener through through where we're sat. We're here in your warehouse. So hi, I'm Alex Oddball. Uh, yeah, so we're in our showroom warehouse at the moment. This is basically a warehouse full of juggling and colour. We've actually been in this warehouse for about three to four years now. And we've actually been doing juggling since 1983 originally so the warehouse actually comprises of loads and loads of stuff it's around about one and a half thousand different products all juggling orientated we do everything from balls clubs unicycle fire umbrellas fire hats fire hula hoops even lassoes from the old cowboy times as well uh, we've got 10 people working here just exclusively on taking orders and wrapping parcels and sending it around the world we actually sell to 76 countries now and we have distributors for our own products all around the world as well so we've got a big chain of juggling for me i love being in the juggling world and being in the warehouse just to see how much juggling equipment goes out because for me it's not a cold experience when you get uh, juggling balls or juggling clubs or even a unicycle or anything or bicycle cards it's just such a beautiful experience that really helps you grow as a person so i really love just seeing big boxes of stuff going out it really really makes me happy so so at the end of the day sometimes i just sit there and just look around and just say wow what what beautiful things we're doing for the world this warehouse is absolutely great for jugglers i actually call it a mecca for jugglers because they come here and they just fall to the floor with like 60 different types of juggling clubs and 80 different types of juggling balls and things i couldn't even imagine so it's just a really really good place i'm very very strong here to make sure we all have a good environment to work as well because i've been in the juggling world my whole life i've been born and bred into it i've been always very very lucky to have loads of lovely people around me and loads of great artists and poets and variety performers from all around the world being here and i kind of wanted to do that little bit of that taste in the warehouse that I ran. So I hired everyone here myself. Um, everyone's really respectful of each other and they really enjoy being here and everyone can juggle, which isn't a requirement of the job, but it happens uh, pretty quick after they uh, start the warehouse. What we do here is we actually do a few different types of business. We sell out to schools, sell out to universities, we sell out to TV companies, we sell to shops, we sell to councils, we sell to governments, we sell to public, we sell to clowns, we sell to magicians, we sell to every different types of people and basically just supply them with the best juggling equipment in the world. I don't know if you can put a figure on it, whether it's easier to go week or month, but how much equipment are you kind of shipping out on a, on a monthly sort of basis here? You know, how, how many balls, how many clubs mm. are being sold? Because it's really interesting for me, someone that's kind of, you know, as, as I've mentioned to you before, being around circus skills for the majority of my life. And most performers listening will be like, well, I know my friends who are performers that juggle, but... I think more people than we would imagine in the world can do a free ball cascade. So how, how much product's going out on a, on a monthly basis? That's a good question. Uh, well, there's more product than you can carry in one hand anyway. And the truthful question is, it can vary quite heavily through month to month. We actually do about a van's load 
a day. So you're talking about five van loads a week, um, but that doesn't actually include pickup. So we have customers that pick up, I don't know, probably about a van's load as well. So you're talking about six van, high top vans worth. Uh, unfortunately, I would love to have the figure of how many balls we sell. But for example, to one customer over a year, I sell 26,000 FUDs to, and that's an Italian customer of mine. So that gives you an idea. We sell a lot of juggling equipment. It's quite crazy actually, but the way the business has really, really changed is the dynamics of the internet. There's a lot more markets out there that were let's say not tapped or not communicated with or didn't have the distribution or the opportunity to buy the juggling equipment so now what we've done because we've got a good distribution chain is we connect with lots of different types of businesses that can sell juggling equipment for you what's really important for me and the way i see juggling the growth of juggling and the way to sell more juggling equipment is actually reaching out to people that aren't just jugglers you know people that are kind of kids adults parents or anything they just want to have something that's fun to do something that's a bit different but something that stimulates you whilst you're not being on a computer or electronic so we're, we're really outreaching to toy companies and lots of different types of companies that are into skill and activities to really push promotion of juggling equipment so that's been one of our ways to grow our markets it's a tricky thing we, we sell tens of thousands of diablos and balls and clubs and loads of different items like i said it's over one and a half thousand different items yeah but maybe i can look into it for you but yeah twenty six thousand to one customer so i think it's probably the most amount we sell to one customer at a time thinking more then about about your customers who are some of the customers that maybe our listeners might might know of or is there any kind of customers you've sold to that surprised you yeah yeah that's some really yeah yeah had one yesterday actually so you have to remind me of his name because i'm not a football fan but you are so um chelsea's owner Roman, so his daughters, uh, Roman Abrunich's daughters, bought some juggling equipment off us two days ago. And it's a funny story, actually, because he, it's not so much a, a famous circus artist, more of, a, more of a Russian billionaire. But anyway, he, um, we, we thought there was fraud on the account. We saw a Russian bank account, oh, this is strange. And we had two orders go out the same uh, day after a day. So we worked out who it was and it turned out to be his daughter. He bought it in a very, very posh place in Chelsea. Um, but some of the variety artists that you might know of, um, Sean Gandini. Sean Gandini is a very, very uh, famous kind of in the juggling scene, but he's also, uh, my mum and dad have known him since he was about 16 years old when he first started out in Covent Garden. So he used to perform in Covent Garden when my mum and dad were there and he had no success at all. Everyone just kept looking because he was basically just juggle normally, not giving any show or anything. And he felt like, why are people not watching me? So he came up to my mum really upset and said, you know, I put so much love and art into my juggling, but people are just not interested in it. And then my mum basically taught him how to do a few different things of integrating the audience and showing them something so they could get it back again and creating a show. And basically did really, really well after that. And uh, yeah, so Sean Gandini, I actually saw a show of his last week in four weeks ago in Worthing, um, which was really, really good, called The Eight Songs. And Sean came up to me and said, oh, you're Alex Oddborn. I said, yeah, yeah, it's nice to see you. And he went, oh, it's so nice. Your mum, when I was 17 years old, gave me my first equipment, first juggling equipment, because I couldn't afford anything. And she's one of the people that inspired me to juggle. So Sean's a really cool guy. Sold to a lot of people in the um, game show world as well. So The Cube. Like people like that, so they bought a lot of the balls. You see a lot of balls on the cube, and I'm always like, oh, that's a Play SRX or a MMX or a FUD or whatever it is. Uh, so a lot of those people. And um, to be honest, there's a lot of variety artists over the years as well, but mostly the things that really stick out for me are people that I wouldn't expect using it, like the game show. And you know, another really quick story, really funny. We had the Russian cube come to us, and they basically needed some juggling balls that were made in uh, Italy, but we sell them. Um, but made the, yeah, so they needed these juggling balls, and they got someone to fly all the way from Moscow to Gatwick with a suitcase and they got they dropped came by the warehouse in a BMW car dropped off full of suitcase worth of juggling balls and then flew back to Russia the same uh, hour 
So that was one of the most unexpected ones that I've had. But yeah, Big Brother. It's another one as well. We had lots and lots of different people. Is um, we, we work with a lot of TV companies as well, like BBC and ITV and DBBCs and things like that as well. And will they come to you and literally just want the product or will they sometimes want, want teaching to do certain skills? Organically, they all come to us. One of these things that does happen through, I guess, SEO, but also us being around for a long time. They always want more than what, what we can give them to a certain degree. But yeah, so sometimes they want just an idea of kind of what a ball does and what are the advantages of it is or a club or a hula hoop. Um, a lot of times they'll want teaching on the item or have somebody there that could do the item so they can show it on TV or show it online as well. It's not just a warehouse. You've got some, a couple of lovely, lovely shops. We first discovered oddballs through a Google search, looking to buy some balls, and, and that was it from there. And I remember the first time we were down in London, we were like, we can go to the shop. The shop in Covent Garden is, sorry, in... Um, Camden, it yeah. is absolutely lovely. But talk me through the shops that you've got, and then it's a long old story. But <laughs> but take me back to, to day dot of the shop. Yeah. So funny enough, we did have a shop in Covent Garden back in the day. But I'll go back to that in a second. Camden has been there since 1989, since the year I was born. So I'm 29 this year, and that was actually the first shop I grew up in. So I used to sleep in a big pile of juggling balls in that shop, and then my dad used use me as part of his selling pitch, I think, and then sell some juggling balls off my cuteness. Um, but anyway, yeah, Brighton's been there since. 92 and we've had 14 shops in the UK's at different points so shops varying from magic shops exclusive magic shops to kite shops to skateboarding shops to juggling shops and then the shops that we have nowadays in Brighton and Camden are a variety of everything they have a tiny bit of magic a bit of kites a bit of juggling and a bit of everything in there to really kind of a piece the kind of modern day people they don't just want to have one shop that has one thing they want a one-stop shop to buy lots of different things so that was the idea going back to the history of the shop which I love I'm like so proud of my mum and dad uh, let alone them being amazing jugglers and good business people and good people they're actually just really good mum and dad as well which is really really important to me and also become my friend uh, as an adult as well but um so mum and dad started the company in 84 that's when the company was established previous to that my dad was uh, failed everything at school awful at everything he's actually autistic my dad he's a spurgist as well he couldn't really read or write at all so he didn't learn to read until he was read his first book when sorry he learned to speak when he was about 12 years old he learned his first book when he was 16 years old. So at school he said he'd always fail everything but he was very very good at maths. His one thing he was really really good at was maths and everything else he sucked at. So from there he was trying to find things to do and things that would make him happy and he didn't really find anything so he did lots of odd jobs and this and that and eventually he found juggling and literally he learned to juggle with balloons full of seed and that was his first juggling balls, all homemade ones. And he learned to juggle free balls, basically, and then just started obsessing, completely obsessing at juggling 12 hours, 13 hours, 14 hours a day, and just juggling constantly. So he wore out his balls quite quickly, and then eventually said, what can we do next? So he made juggling clubs. And he made these out of washing up liquid bottles with sticks and little knobs at the ends. And his uh, mum actually helped him made his first set. And again, he juggled them obsessively for a long, long time, broke them all. And then he started looking out on the world, going, where can I buy juggling balls and clubs from? In England, there was no nothing in Europe it was very very hard to find and this is prior to the internet and prior to really having that much information out there so eventually he found Brian Dubay in America in New York and he managed to source some juggling clubs and these were awesome juggling clubs they're really really good and he brought I don't know like 12 back to the UK and then started juggling Covent Garden and this is a sort of, sort of first juggling experience and he started juggling there and doing shows and doing kind of basic things trying to work out how he could 
make money out of juggling not even make money but make a life out of juggling so he found a troop there and he started juggling more and more with his circus troop and at this time he was called max the juggler so this is prize of any odd balls or anything so when he started juggling his clubs in um, covent garden everyone was like wow where did you get these clubs from he's amazing you know i really really want a set so eventually he started selling out of his suitcase so he literally have his suitcase open sell his juggling clubs buy some more from america and start the distribution through there this is going back to early 80s late 70s so eventually he built up a kind of of clientele with jugglers around Covent Garden actually further afield because it was so hard to get juggling equipment people all over the UK were coming to Covent Garden just to bite off my dad from there going back they started a juggling shop in my mum and dad's bedroom but my dad was living in a place in Hackney in a council estate and he was learning to juggle and ride unicycles with his troops. And eventually the neighbours below started complaining because it was just constant banging and bashing all the time. It was driving the neighbours mad. So they knocked on the door and said, you didn't want to complain. So the neighbour was actually turned out to be my mum and said, you know, why, why is this constant banging and bashing all the time? You know, we're trying, I'm a school teacher and I'm trying to sleep. And then my dad said, well, I'm learning to ride a unicycle and learning to juggle. And my mum was like, well, okay, oh, can you teach me? And then my, my dad was like, yeah, yeah. So my dad taught my mum how to juggle. And then my dad went to India for 18 months to go find a spiritual trip and juggle and meditate and all those things. At the time, my mum was with her first husband, but she ended up splitting up between this 18 month period. And my dad came back from India with a tropical disease. So they ended up, my mum met up with my dad and then nursed him back to health. And then they became jugglers and traveled the world. So that's kind of how that side of things happened. So my mum and dad traveled a lot and juggled together and became quite pro uh, prolific jugglers together. But then they came back to London and started the first juggling shop in their bedroom. And they used to turn their bed around the juggling equipment and had juggling equipment all laid on their bed and take the cupboards and all the juggling equipment in the cupboards and, and all the shelves would all be juggling equipment as well. So it would be a bedroom slash juggling shop. Then it started all people all over Europe and the world, whenever they come to England, they always came to my mum and dad's bedroom to buy juggling equipment. So that's where that sort of started off. And then eventually in 1984 is when they established their first shop, which was in Old Street in London. And then it was Islington Street as well, and then Covent Garden. So there were the three shops that were going back into London. So yeah, from that period, we've grown into being honest with you, my dad just wanted to be a shopkeeper. All he really cared about is getting juggling equipment, really good juggling equipment out on the market that lots of jugglers could enjoy it, but also having um, a place where he could meet like-minded people and actually learn how to communicate better because he actually sucked at conversations he was really bad at conversations socially he found it very very hard that's why he liked performing because he didn't have to socially interact even though non-performers wouldn't quite understand it it's one of these things as a performer you can actually disconnect from the audience and be in control of it rather than not being in control and the conversation obviously it's 50 50. so he started up the shops just to have conversations that was literally why he did it first of all and he'd have the same conversations all the time and he got really really good at it and then realized that he was actually could add a lot to the shops and a lot to the world and realized that this is what he wanted as his career so from there there, that was back in the 80s. He did the shop stuff for many, many years. We were the biggest juggling company back in the 80s and 90s. He used to manufacture a lot of different items. So like the Beard Circus Special, which a lot of people know as a club. That was my dad's signature club back in the 80s, late 80s. Um, and then he sold it out to Beards. So my dad's half Canadian. So half my side is Canadian, the other half's from North London. Um, so my dad decided he wanted to go see his sisters and he's got six sisters and two brothers. Um, in Canada so he went all the way over to Canada with me my brothers and my sisters and I've got two brothers and a sister so we all went out to Canada and my dad sold the business at that time and decided that he wanted to just be a kind of a juggler in Canada and just travel through Canada and maybe see different parts of the world so he sold the company uh, for a good amount of money and uh, went out there and we traveled throughout Canada for about two years and my mum and dad were just doing street shows all around Canada earning enough money for petrol keep traveling through from auntie to auntie to cousin to cousin to cousin and now I've got 56 cousins in Canada so 
<laughs> crazy amount of cousins but um yeah so after that the people that bought the business over are pretty much bankrupted it or very very close to bankrupting it so he decided to move back to england to try and save the business so we came back to england and we built the company to what it is now um eight years ago my new sister so i've actually got two sisters now but um new sister was born and my dad said yeah actually now i don't just want to do shops retail's dropped off quite a lot i want to really do the business for the sake of enjoying business but also to push more juggling equipment around the world and get more margin so people can make money basically out of selling the juggling equipment because that's something we've always struggled with in the juggling world because shops are very expensive rents are very expensive and juggling is a little bit niche so it's one of these things so Basically, last eight years, we've really built up in manufacturing lots of different items. We actually own nine juggling brands and kind of related brands, and we actually distribute over 56 brands now. So it means the shops can still be there and still be prosperous and healthy, but also it means that we've touched a lot more jugglers around the world by selling more juggling equipment out in the world. And we're in a position now that we just create really exciting, new, pushing, cutting-edge juggling equipment that makes a lot of jugglers really, really happy. A lot of jugglers say to me, this is their favourite prop. And it makes me very, very proud because I've had to do a part of the design, the manufacturing and distribution of it and the selling. Um, but yeah, just getting more and more kind of exciting, well-priced juggling items in the market now. So that's kind of how we've grown from back when my dad was a kind of a, a hyphenated failure at school and then came into a kind of a juggler and so going for the business and so on and so on. So yeah, that's a little bit about my history and my story. So many messages there for performers. I mean, n- number one, if you're learning to juggle and you're dropping, don't worry because it might result in your neighbour complaining and that could be the love of your life just there underneath. Um, I wonder, you know, you mentioned that you've obviously sustained this business as a family for a long time and you mentioned that, that juggling is quite niche. Um, why do you think there's remained at least enough of a constant interest from people in learning these kind of skills um that you can continue to to sell the amount of products that you do i love that question it's really really nice um actually adds like goosebumps to me because i'm very very passionate about juggling and i'm i'm glad i'm here in this moment in the company and in time as well because i really really enjoy what we do but to answer your question is juggling is announced as one of the oldest professions in the world as well as magic so they say um carpentry was one of the oldest ones and then prostitution and then harlequinning to entertain to gesturing and stuff so that can incorporate juggling magic and a lot of variety so the first answer to your question is i feel like it's an ingrained thing into our consciousness juggling even though people don't quite realize it but we juggle things every day if it's not memories or physicality of doing things or actually objects so i feel like everyone can connect with the fact of juggling it's been there for a long long time the reason why we've sustained it um I think there's a few different reasons, but passion doesn't go unnoticed and love doesn't go unnoticed. You know, my mum and dad were brought up in the 60s and stuff and they're kind of hippie as well as being who they are. But they've always said the love that you put into business and into life, you get out. Even it might not come out straight away, but one way or the other it comes out. It could be, you know, someone enjoying it or it could be getting back and getting loads of juggling business and so on and so on. But back in the 90s, juggling had a huge boom. I think that was partly to do with my mum and dad doing loads of juggling workshops, so they're very proactive in the industry. Um, Also, there were things like the Juggling for Complete Beginners, made by Klutz, huge book, sold millions and millions of copies, as well as uh, the Ultimate Ball Juggling video, which my dad made in 89, which sold a million copies. So that that helped as well. But I think in the 90s, there was a technology boom as well. And I feel like there are parallels between technology booms and 
skill kind of off digitalized booms because people that are on technology or are consumed in technology kind of want an outlet to get out of that to find their own concentrated non-concentrated space that's very technical and can be not technical as well so there's quite a lot of paradoxes and complexes between both of them 90s was huge for juggling and it dropped on and off so i think the internet's had a huge thing obviously to do with juggling so like when i was a kid you'd see five balls and that'd be like, wow. It'd be like serious stuff. And now five balls is like the three balls. So the internet, you see people that are doing 11 balls. Pete Bones, he lived in Brighton for a long time. It's a Guinness World Record. Now it's a guy called Alex Barron. Um, I basically just made it really, really exciting. Because you've got like superstars of juggling and diabloing and unicycling all on the internet. And all you've got to do is click, look at it. And then you realise either intimidatingly that there's loads out there or inspiringly there's loads out there. So... Yeah, I think there's been a sustained part through people being jugglers and being proactive and wanting to spread it. But also the media kind of got onto it for a long period of time. They got into it. And also like booms like Diablo's. Like Diablo is older than juggling. Um, originally comes from 320 uh, BC. Uh, first recorded Diablo's from the ancient Greek pottery. Really, really old. And yo-yos, um, in Latin it means come, come, yo-yo. So all these things have been around far longer than you would ever imagine. So, you know, you talk to grandmas at the age of 90, they're all juggling and diabloing. And you talk to some of the kids, they wouldn't even know what juggling is. So there's a kind of a weird paradox between it going up and down. But, I, you know, beyond all of the things that I just said, it's because it's fun. That's the real answer to it. I mean, there's a lot of things about why it could be there, but because it's fun, you get a lot from it, so therefore you want to do it. And do you think it kind of takes a, a certain kind of person to go from maybe I'm going to learn a, a little bit you know maybe I'll learn a few tricks with a yo-yo or maybe I'll learn a, a simple you know a free ball cascade um maybe I'll learn some plate spinning to then being the kind of person that then wants to take that forward and, and have it as a career and, and, and a love do you think that's something that's kind of built inside someone that they they turn that passion in or is it a case of actually we've got some of the people you've mentioned before, those of amazing people doing amazing things that are then inspiring those people to take it further. Mm, uh, interesting question. Uh, yeah, I kind of like, I would never say I'm right or wrong, by the way. I like to just talk and, yeah, I obviously like to talk. But um, no, I like to talk about things and then kind of get your own opinion. But my opinion would be that jugglers, in a sense of a professional mindset, like, there's not many jugglers that are born jugglers. Like, I was born in a juggling family. Like, out of my brothers and sisters, I'm the only juggler. So the truth is, you've got to want to do it. Um, and I hardly know any professional jugglers that were had their parents as jugglers. So that's one thing. I'm slightly different to most people. But I would say you were born into a slightly... There's a mentality with juggling or variety artists in general because it's quite a hard job and you've got to grind through it. So to answer your question, hobbyist, I feel like anyone could learn to juggle and get a lot from it, or circus skills, because I really feel like there's a lot of gain through there and there's enough circus skills out there to meet people's different abilities and what they want from it short-term, long-term. The professional juggler, in general, it reminds me of my mum used to tell me as a kid, she said, Alex, if you become a professional juggler, you'll be very rich in the heart but poor in the pocket. And the truth is, you've got to want to do it. Saying that I know jugglers that earn up to 150 grand a year and they do corporate stuff and they do really, really well and they do 52 international flights a year and so on and so on. I know jugglers that can hardly pay for their bread at the end of the day. So the want doesn't mean that you can be professional or not. It just means that you're committed to it and that's your, your passion. 
the reason why I'm struggling with it is I know a lot of performers and they all started off with really mundane jobs and they completely rebelled against it and found something in the juggling world or in the magic world that really, really screamed to them that they could actually be free. So I think it's the people that feel entrapped that feel like they can't do it, that almost become the best at it because they really drive towards it and then they find the little bit of love through juggling or whatever it is and then get really excited about it and then just start committing themselves and working to it. But on top of that, I would say the people that are bloody committed and that will juggle huge amount of hours a day or practice or work on shows a huge amount of time and really understand the demographic to really become professionals are the people that are really there with it. So I wouldn't say it's so much a juggling mindset. I think it's more of a mindset of finding that juggling or finding that thing and then going wow this is really exciting and then just putting that excitement into it until eventually it becomes even more exciting for everyone outside not just inside yeah and without going too deep it's you know i find it very interesting when you mentioned that your dad had kind of struggled at school me and kane struggled quite badly at school and um you know magic was something we actually picked up just as we were ending finishing school if we hadn't have done that Lord knows what we'd be doing. Um, <laughs> what else to do people with no qualifications do? Um, but do you kind of think there's actually that circus skills and juggling can actually play a much bigger role than, than we think in actually helping, you know, kids that maybe aren't, aren't the brightest or for whatever reason aren't managing to, to focus on education, but it can actually show them that they can, they can do something, they can focus on something, and, and that can actually help them then move forward in it it doesn't have to be for a life as a performer but it can then actually show them that that they can they can do anything it's just looking at it in a different way yeah like it's um i always feel a bit sad for the school system in the sense that they obviously have a lot of creative arts and in england we are lucky because there is a lot of places in the world that don't have any education you know but circus school has been a very touching thing for me and what i've seen a lot is people that completely again like are told that they're failures which i think is a disgusting way to think of it because obviously life is way bigger than school and you realize that when you're out of school but not when you're in school uh, but for people that have failed everything academically and then they find juggling and they just completely succeed in it um the truth is, i mean so yeah my mum is a teacher as i said she was a special needs teacher for a long period of time and then she became a juggler she became a juggler when she was 27 and she was a teacher before that as well so she's a big advocate in teaching special needs people along with kind of the mainstream school industry, um, how to juggle through lots of different ways of even just playing with one ball, two ball, three ball and doing scarves and Diablos, things like that. And I don't just, I don't just think I know it's helped thousands and thousands of people. And I've personally taught thousands of people to juggle that I've taught hundreds of people to juggle and so on and so on. So it's just one of these things that are really, really nice. It's ingrained into us. It's a mathematical physics science experiment as well as let alone it being a, a kind of a physical exercise there's so many different elements within school education there that's actually great but the main thing is you don't know you're learning but you're learning so the kids that don't want to learn or so really try not to do any book studies actually just have a good time again so it kind of goes back to my last point it's fun and i think that when you want to learn if it's fun then it makes it a lot more progressive to once you want to learn it and actually just a lot more exciting to learn it as well so you know, I really feel there should be more circus in schools. I think, I don't know if you guys had it, but we had a week of circus in school. But it was actually one day's worth of circus in school. But circus is always seen as like an unreachable thing, which I always kind of feel is sad because anyone can do basic circus skills. And what's really great about it is once you've learned it, you automatically can show people around you it. Unlike doing... 
an English study, you know, where you write a paper, it's more of a kind of a personal experience with that and a teacher maybe. That's what I love about juggling, it's an outwardly thing. So it doesn't just help you be more aware of your hands-eye coordination and the mathematical side of things, but it also helps you be more social and make friends. And I think that whole circle of things really relates to school, academia, education. Uh, and there's a bit of a lacking on that side, I think. Yeah, I kind of want to touch on Covent Garden quickly um, because uh, I often perform in, in Covent Garden. And actually, if you go down in, in the height of summer, we could be looking at sort of anything from sort of 60 upwards performers mm. uh, are on one of the, the free free pitches we've got there at the minute. Uh, or free major pitches, it's all the mm. sneaky ones around the corners that not everyone knows about. Um, what have your parents kind of told you about what the scene was like in the early 80s in Covent Garden? Really interesting. I, I've got so many early memories from Covent Garden. Like, I pretty much grew up there as a kid. Like, um, is, it the, is it the church that's there or is it the, host, the town hall or whatever? What's that big... The church, which uh, the church, the kind of the main, the main area that looks... It looks facing the Punch and Judy pub and there's exactly. the big church behind, yeah. So, yeah, some of my first memories of watching shows there and uh, Chris and Alex, of guys that do the unicycles and stuff there. Um, but how it's, how it's changed and how it's evolved, because... Really interesting because it was a bit more cowboyish back in the day. So, like, I was born in '89, so mum and dad were performing way before then. Um, and they said basically it was a lot more like, I mean, nowadays you have to get there early and stuff, but there's a lot more competitiveness back in the day because it wasn't organised. The Covent Garden Society or the you kind know, of street performing society wasn't. I don't think it was established, or I think it was established in the 90s. Um, and I'm pretty sure my mum and dad had part to do with the establishment of the street performers as well. So, yeah, you had to really fight for your spaces, get there even earlier. And I think there was more, even fisticuffs sometimes about it, and there's a lot more tension about who got the spots, and you really had to earn your spots through, I think, quality of the show, not just turning up sort of thing. So, I mean, that's changed quite a lot. Variety was really great back in the day, and I don't mean to be funny, but nowadays I find Covent Garden way less interesting than back in the day. And I don't know if it's just because I'm an adult, because I still have a child set mind. You know, I really love seeing shows. I see shows, you know, weekly. Um, but yeah, back in the day, the variety was a lot more exciting for me. So there seemed to be a lot less singers, and just like a lot more artists. There's a lot more crazy stuff going on, and maybe because there was more money back in the day. I don't know because I'm kind of less connected to what it is to what it is now than what I was before, but yeah. So um, the variety was really really good back in the day. It was really really exciting. I felt like there was a really good buzz because um, the internet wasn't there. So seeing a trick was like wow. You could never see this anywhere else. Where nowadays because of the internet, I think people are just completely overstimulated with tricks and like crazy things. So as a kid, it was just like that magic when you're sitting in as an audience member. And the people around you, those people just wouldn't leave. They would be concrete to the floor and they would all give money at the end of it. And, you know, I was a, the money boy at the end. I was a hat boy for all the shows. And that was like one of my first jobs with my brothers and sisters. And we got really good at that. Um, but yeah, so yeah, no, it has changed a lot for me personally because now I'm, I'm not doing any of that and I'm just watching it. Um, the tricks look, some really, really lovely performers there, some really, really great stuff. But the tricks look almost, for me, a little bit less exciting than what they were. And the variety seems a little bit less. Um, saying that there's still a good buzz it's still there so it makes me really really happy because every time I go to London or bring my friends to London I take them to Covent Garden because like first of all I've got a lot of nostalgia there but also it's just a really good buzz about the place and it has a nice atmosphere um, it's yeah, a bit, bit too corporate for me nowadays as well compared to what it was probably last bit <laughs> it's time for gig of the week 
This week's gig of the week is tomorrow, Tuesday the 11th of December, which means you'll have the rest of the week free to recover from what is surely going to be a raucous night at Gingzilla's Gingerbread House. I think I'm saying that last bit right. Which is on this week in London, of all places, at the Leicester Square Theatre. If you don't know anything about Gingzilla or you haven't seen Gingzilla before, get yourself along. Gingzilla is a seven-foot glam monster come all the way from Australia, but is residing here in London now after a five-star sellout season at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, the award-winning international glam monster returns to London at Christmas in Leicester Square with a cabaret Christmas carol to rock your socks off. Enter into Gingzilla's gingerbread house where sweet tunes of yesteryear fill the air through the songs and stories of a modern year. You're listening to Talking Tricks, the home of amazing stories from magic, circus, variety and comedy performers. Apart from Covent Garden and we, we've touched on the Canadian tour, yeah. um, where else did your parents take their act? Everywhere. Just tell you a little bit about my mum, because she'll kill me if I don't talk about her a bit. My mum's really, really great. So my mum, so my mum's a clown, more more or less, and a juggler. So my mum's actually a five club juggler. So um, and also does lots of clowning and acting, and she's a poet as as well. So what's interesting is my dad was a core kind of juggler. He would just juggle, juggle, juggle. My mum was more of a kind of a clown juggler. So when they did their show together, they had this really beautiful show, um, kind of teddy bears picnic part where there would be. It's a really funny act, but they would be eating fruit, you know, the classic eating fruit trick and teddy bears picnic. And then my dad would come out in a pink tutu and do Swan Lake, you know, as they do. Um, Going into, my dad used to make uh, bespoke unicycles. So he's got a um, four-wheeled diamond unicycle. And because we're on radio, so I'll make it a bit more descriptive. So you have your one wheel, you have your two wheels next to each other so it's like a cog and then you have your one wheel again so it's in a diamond shape the unicycle and then my mum would be on a dr martin boot unicycle so it'd rather have a wheel would have dr martin boots all in a row that you'd go in a sort of kind of a wiggly line in and my dad would come out on his diamond one and then my mum would uh balance the bigger uh, diamond unicycle on her chin and juggle three fire torches underneath so the reason why I'm telling you all of that is that they had a really really good show so when they started traveling my previously to that my dad traveled everywhere like everywhere, he travelled all through France. He learned to speak French in Paris, back when the man on wire was doing his stuff, Pierre Giza. So he was there in that period of time, and he was performing all over France, all over Germany. He lived in Israel for six months, in India. Like, he's very, very well travelled. Um, always juggling, always earning off juggling. So my dad used to, like, not wear shoes, he used to have ripped up jeans, but he was earning 80 quid an hour back in the 80s in Paris, you know, and he was staying in the posh hotels and, and he'd have all his money in a in a pillowcase and change and then go up there and change it all up just so he could have a bath in there. And I remember he told me a story about where he lost his van for two weeks so he couldn't find his van again. Just couldn't remember where he parked it. So he ended up staying in hotels every single day from street performing and eventually found his van after two weeks. But yeah, so they've travelled everywhere. Mum and dad together, they went throughout. They, I think my dad hitchhiked 25,000 miles through America and Canada. But that was previous to mum and dad going out there. And then my mum and dad travelled throughout America and Canada. And after that, we were going to go to Mexico to travel, but ended up coming back to England to go through there. But even now, I took my mum and dad to the BJC in Almere, which was the 40th anniversary of that, and that's the first dragon convention they've been to together for the last for the last 25 years. They um, they broke up when I was eight years old, so they haven't been together for quite a long time. But um, yeah, all around the world. I mean, to be honest, I feel very very lucky to just feel like they've been everywhere. They're just like they've so well travelled. And I was saying earlier, 
they tell me stories about their travels around the world even today like a new story will come out and i'm like it's the most epic story i've ever heard and they're still coming out of it but i think that's what happens when you travel and for you then um talk to me about kind of performing that, that you've done then as, as a juggler mm-hmm. so i've been a i learned to juggle when i was started learning to juggle when i was about four but i've been doing diablo since i was two and a half so i remember as kids everyone used to have like toy cars and footballs and things and i had a diablo so i used to have my hand sticks and my diablo and i used to drag the diablo behind me and there's a lot of embarrassing pictures of me as a one and one and a half year old naked diabloing so i learned to diablo at two and a half um i started performing at the age of around about five six used to do hat collections from the age of three to five in covent garden i've done loads of performance stuff myself so i learned to juggle at five and a half six learned to ride my unicycle at six and then i learned to juggle fire at eight um, did my first fire show at the age of eight at Glastonbury in front of about 100,000 people. And that's probably about 60,000 people just after Oasis in 96. And it was like a really big gig. And back in the day, Glastonbury had a lot of money for jugglers. They don't anymore. Um, and there was 150 fire performers all there. And there was a big kind of ring of like fire fire jugglers and there's a really just a beautiful piece thing out so after uh, uh, oasis finished they all the crowd were driven into the fire area for this big fire show as well so that was one of my first big memories and then haggis mcleod he was above me on a big steel drum juggling oh, embarrassing story i was juggling fireballs and i dropped one fireball and it rolled all the way down the stage really painfully to the edge of the stage and i was eight years old so i got away with it but i remember haggis being a bit pissed off um <laughs> How dare you drop? <laughs> <laughs> He's eight years old. He must be better. Anyway. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, so um, going on from that, um, I've done a lot of cool stuff. So when I was young, I did a lot of stuff with CBBS and Nickelodeon and lots of cool stuff. So actual shows, we used to do a lot of street shows. I travelled throughout Holland a lot. We used to go every year in Utrecht and in Amsterdam to do street shows, mostly performing for charities. So working with kind of like terminally ill children or underprivileged children or whatever it is, just to give back. So not really getting money from it, more giving outwardly. Did a lot of gigs myself working in nightclubs when I became a teenager because it was a nightclub and it was cool. So, and you get paid quite a lot of money for quite easy work. So I did a gig in, where was it? It was in Mayfair and it was for like Frank Lampard. It was a really funny story. And as being a performer, people relate to this sort of thing. But um, so I got there, it was a gig between two and five in the morning. LED juggling gigs, that's what happens. They're quite a late one. So we got there and they were like, okay, have you got your boxes? And I was like, okay, yep. So I was wearing my boxes. And then they were like, we're just gonna body paint you. And I was like, okay. So they body painted me from head to toe, apart from my boxes. And I started the gig at two and it was basically um, all the footballers there, like Frank Lampard and all these footballers and Atomic um, Sugar Babes and like, all these people. I'm not that into like poppy stuff or, or football. So I didn't really know who they were apart from Frank Lampard because I recognized him. And I remember him coming up to me and he was like, so is that your real job? And I was like, <laughs> Yeah, like body painted head to toe in my boxes. Like, yeah, this is what gets me by uh, nine till five. And it's like, all right. And then uh, some other footballer came along, knocked the balls out of my hands. And that's the life of a juggler, eh? Um, yeah, so I juggled for the Queen when I was 12. Um, she came to Brighton and uh, did that. I juggled for Prince Charles, Prince uh, Princess Anne. Done a lot of royal stuff. So I kind of got like nice connections throughout. And... As a juggler, and I guess your listeners will relate to it as well, you just get in such weird places, such strange places. I've been, I did some hula hooping with Madonna at a Summer Fate thing, you know, and she came on with a helicopter. So we've done loads and loads and loads of cool stuff. And they're my own personal things. And there's lots of things I can't remember as well. But yeah, there's a few few gigs I've done. Well-travelled family. You mentioned earlier that the... Uh 
expansion might not be the correct word for it, but, but Oddballs is kind of moving in a European direction. Well, it just has. Talk us uh, a little bit about that. Brexit. Yeah, yeah, I'll talk about Brexit, that's fine. I've got loads and loads of friends all around the world. Like, I've always felt, as a variety artist and juggler and performer, that I'm not just English, you know? I travel everywhere and I can go anywhere in the world and meet other jugglers without having to speak the language and we just communicate. And you realise you are the same people. I mean, previously I uh, travelled to Taiwan a few months ago and I was like, actually, second time I've been there. I went there last year and they are famous for Diablos. So that's what Taiwan's pretty much famous for. But I went there and I was really nervous about it because I've never really been to Asia and I was like, oh, it's going to be so different and, you know, it's quite apprehensive. And I got there and after a week, I realised, you know, cultures are very different. I still had a lot of kind of culture shock. And when I went back there this year, felt like, even though it was a 19 hour flight away, it felt like, no, it wasn't like hardly any distance away because I've got friends there and I realised that we're all the same people. We just have different cultures. And the reason why I'm saying that, it upset me a lot that Brexit got away from the European scene because as a juggler and as a person of the world, I really feel like I'm a person of the world. I'm not just British. I mean, you know, I'm not just English. I'm just, I'm a person fundamentally and I like what I like and I'm not just one culture or one nation you know so being a juggler and being a businessman Brexit hurt us a lot overnight we lost a lot of money we deal a lot in European trade juggling in Europe is a lot more accepted than it is in England the in France and Germany it's got a lot more of a culture there to see unicyclists just going down the road and you have after school clubs of unicyclists and it's normal in England it isn't so same with juggling and diabloing as well it's just a lot more institutionalised because they have better school systems than us there's a lot more school stuff going on with there so there's a lot more kind of earlier integration lot of cool juggling festivals and so on so on but anyway we've got a lot of business in Europe so when Brexit happens the uh, pound price dropped down I buy in dollars and in euros and I sell in pounds so it was the worst possible thing that could happen for us is the pound rate dropping and the euro going down basically we lost a lot of money but also the European trade became a lot more exciting for my European customers because they could buy it for me but a lot more kind of scary for our buying prices and wholesale prices so we changed our dynamic immediately we looked into going to europe quite quickly after brexit got announced because we realized we actually make products for toy shops and because they're ce mark they need to be certified within europe and because we're going to be leaving Europe, all of the certifications that we've done on our products, such as toy juggling products, bring juggling items into toy shops, like professional juggling items into toy shops, rather than rubbish plastic things that don't work, having like well-weighted things, but all of the certifications will come non-avoid. As well as we give free shipping out to Europe, that would be very, very hard because of the tariff codes. So all of these reasons basically screened out that we had to have somewhere in Europe. We didn't quite want to have it because we weren't quite ready for it, but we accepted it. So this is going back two years ago. So we're in a lot of negotiations with lots of people for two years to work out what we're going to do my dad literally moved out there last week so he's now in Lithuania Lithuania is a really great place really really nice people not the best juggling scene in the world to be honest with you because there's not much juggling out there but just a really nice place full of really really nice people really good to get around the whole of Europe for like the distribution but also just to see more juggling stuff so that's kind of the reason why we're in Europe and reason why we're expanded I guess more securing and expanding because we've had to we've had to expand because of the security I think something that, that will be apparent from, from chatting to you is is a dedication and a passion and a love for, for sharing juggling with, with the world whether it's a, a hobbyist that wants to find something fun to do or you know maybe inspiring that pro that's uh, been doing it for years and years and maybe is becoming a little bit lethargic and something that's really at the, at the forefront of the heart of that is, is the British Juggling Convention yeah. um, so, so kind of tell us a little bit about that for, for anyone that's that's never been or even never heard of it and what's it entail? Cool, so uh, the BJC, it's uh, known as the British Juggling Convention, has been going on now for 
Oh, God, I'm going to get it wrong. But let's say uh, 40, 25, 26, 27 years now. I think the European Drug Convention has been going for 42 years. So the EJC is the European Drug Convention. The BJC is the British Drug Convention. It was in 1986 it was established, as well as many juggling things. It was actually established by my mum and dad. There was actually no official juggling convention before that. The first juggling convention was held in London over three days. And it was actually organised by my dad, my mum, Haggis, McLeod, Charlie Holland, and somebody else that's gonna get upset. What I'll do is I'll give you a little bit of information, like a flyer of the first BJC as well, just so you can have a little look up and check it out because I'm gonna forget someone. Um, but yes, yeah, so it was held there. It was held over three days. It wasn't an overnight thing. Um, nowadays, BJCs are held over about five or six days, all with camping and things like that. This was held over three separate days. They had a thousand people through the door each day on the first ever BJC. Modern day BJCs hold around about the same sort of numbers, uh, if not a little bit less. So it's really, really successful. Um, they had workshops there. They had like performers from around the world teaching other people how to do it. Just going back to the bread and butter of what workshops should be. What was really exciting is you think it was back in 86, there wasn't anything out there. There was no conventions. There was nothing really showing jugglers in England where to go, apart from the workshops mum and dad did in Covent Garden and Brick Lane, they did a few, and in Tottenham they did a few as well. Um, but yeah, so that's how the BJC got started. It's now a really big organization, um, and I'm lucky enough to go still, and I feel very, very proud. So dad won an award a few years ago for being one of the most uh, influential jugglers in England. On top of that, I will add that my mum and dad both did start it because um, basically both very, very different characters where mum was really into nurturing. She's very social and very, very talkative. So she really nurtured the scene and dad was very much a kind of advocate of the kind of higher end juggling, really showing people this kind of like high, high end juggling and being like the one that people would drop their jaws at. Uh, and mum would be uh, actually talking to them, giving quite a lot of time a day for them as well. Both of them were really, really involved in the juggling scene throughout it. Um, the first European juggling convention was actually started in Brighton, in my hometown, and that was 41 years ago and dad was there. So he was actually at the first European juggling convention and started the first BJC with mum and dad. Probably looking to wrap things up now really. So sort of final question and uh, feel free to, you know, yeah. throw anything else in that you don't get an opportunity to kind of mention in this. But I wonder if you kind of had, you know, just a few things. One sort of key piece of advice for someone that's looking to to start juggling, maybe if they're, they're struggling with it or something like that. And then also, um, what's the sort of craziest experience that you've had uh, in your life as a juggler? Well, there's a lot of those. So, uh, you know, I'm just going to talk about a juggling kit I got from the 1970s quickly, and it's called um, Juggling Without Struggling. So I quite like that line, so I'm going to use that. So, um, some advice for kind of up-and-coming jugglers. Yeah, so juggling is a really, really great thing, first of all. And obviously, I'm, I sound a bit biased, but uh, the truth is, it's helped a lot of people over the years, but it's also given a lot of people enjoyment through mental kind of in issues or physical things as well, but as well as just enjoying things that are just outside and inside with people and know people as well. But some of the advice is to get some nice juggling balls because I feel like it's like a real thing. It hurts me a lot when you have things that aren't well-designed because if you have something that's not well-designed, it's like riding a bike that always turns to left. You're always going to turn to left. You can't do anything if it's designed to turn to left. You need something that's going to work. 
So either you know visit one of our shops in London or Brighton or go onto the website, have a little look, and just look at all the juggling balls on there because we don't sell anything that is a toy shop item. We sell things for professionals that are also good for beginners because the truth is if you get someone who's a professional, then they actually could juggle something that's less, uh, less, lessly well made than something that's just a beginner. So first thing is get something that actually works well. Truth is it doesn't just have to be a juggling ball. You can have something that's well weighed. You can use oranges, you know, it doesn't matter what you use as long as it has a right weight for the actual purpose of it. You will create Create lots of juice around the house um, always um, I would also give us a little shout on the website we've got loads of nice little links on there about workshops in local areas so either finding a workshop in your local area or finding like a, a little one-day convention because there's a lot of one-day juggling conventions around uh, England and just meeting up with jugglers because let alone juggling being great the jugglers are actually awesome really nice people and then they will really inspire you just to have a little play so even if it's a short-lived thing being able to juggle three balls is like riding a bike you'll have it for the rest of your life and it's a really really rewarding thing and it's something that you'll probably end up doing off and on for the rest of your life so let alone getting good juggling equipment that will actually work and finding jugglers is you can actually find really basic instructions on YouTube about how to juggle juggling isn't a hard thing to do like juggling free balls and cascade what is hard is not understanding what you're doing so in my family we always say juggling doesn't take practice technique makes it juggling doesn't <laughs> it's good that I'm getting tongue-tied now it's right at the end um, practice doesn't make perfect technique does because you can practice the wrong thing forever but if you practice the right thing and understand the technique then it'll work there's never been something that's more so than juggling three balls because if you do the wrong thing and you don't throw in time or you throw too late or you throw too early you're always going to mess it up but as soon as you throw at the right time and actually have the right pattern it becomes really really easy my mum learned and she was completely dyspraxic never but she said she swore she'd never be able to juggle and she really really was very very strong about it and now she became a prolific juggler, five club juggler. I've taught people with one arm to juggle. I used the stump on the other arm to juggle with two arms. I've taught blind people to juggle with bells in it. I've taught people who are partially sighted. So there's so many different abilities around the world that I can actually juggle and get enjoyment out of it that I would say just try it because juggling is actually about dropping. It's one of the most uh, common things jugglers have hold in common. And if you're not dropping, you're not trying. Um, but get the technique get the right equipment and meet with jugglers and you'll be able to juggle with probably within an hour. And crazy story from your life in juggling. Yeah, so where do I start? Okay, yeah, so I feel like, I think meeting the queen was a weird one because it really mean, it meant like almost nothing for me apart from sort of bragging rights, which I actually don't talk about very much because I find it a little bit weird. Um, but when I met the queen, uh, she came to Brighton because I was in a performing arts group, kind of a young group between nine and 14 of like good jugglers and circus artists that wanted to perform. So she came to Brighton Pavilion and I met her and I was on a five foot unicycle at the time. And after getting called security vetted and everything else, I was on my unicycle rocking away. So just standing one back and going back and forth. And she said, oh, that's very clever. How long have you been doing that for? And I said, oh, I've been doing it my whole life. And she went, oh, that's very nice. And just looked at me and I looked down and I was like, oh, that's the Queen of England. I'm on a five foot unicycle. And then she walked away and never spoke to me again. But that was sort of a weird story that has always kind of stayed with me. Do you know, one more, setting my hair on fire in the middle of a show. That was a good one as well. I remember Glastonbury experience again. Yeah, so I did that. I was uh, in the middle of a, a show at Glastonbury and set my hair on fire. I managed to get it back out again and carry on with the show. So that was another crazy story. But they're my ones anyway. Yeah. 
you Glastonbury and fire just has never mixed, does it? No, that's a lie. It's just um, kids fire and uh, Glastonbury. Do you know what? That was actually the same show as the first one. That was, <laughs> it was a good show, that one. <laughs> nice. Alex, thanks for joining us on Talking Tricks. Thank you very much. And I just wanted to say thank you to all the listeners as well. And if they ever need any juggling advice, they always can come visit us on oddballs.co.uk or check out juggling.tv for loads of cool video tricks. Thank you for listening to Talking Tricks with Cade and Abel. Please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast.